Hello, hello. Hello. And welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. But for all the ghosts. Hey, Christina. Hello, how are you? I'm a little sad. You're a little sad. Well, you guys, we've been promoting our t-shirts for the last oh. few weeks. Mm. Very hard. And I got an email the other day that the company that does our t-shirting um, is closing. Um, now, first and foremost, they're closing in January. So you Still have got plenty of time. Plenty of time to buy t-shirts. But they're not accepting new designs, which is unfortunate because there's one design I made that I love so much. <sighs> and I can't have it yet. Um, in any case. It's such a good design for the record. I am... I'm in love. I made stickers for it, so it's fine. The stickers will be available in the next month or so. Um, but, you know, I had mentioned on the show before, Below the Collar is a subsidiary of um, One Hour Tees, which is, in its own, they just do, you know, T-shirt ordering if you need to order T-shirts for your group or event. But aside from that, they run Pro Wrestling Tees and All Elite Wrestling T-shirts. So they do a lot of T-shirting, and they just don't have that thing to wear with all to keep the maintenance up on the site that runs ours and all the other podcasts. Mm -hmm. So they have to close that section down. So there's going to be working on their printing on demand tees and they're being working on their wrestling tees, but we, our tees won't be there anymore. So Can worry. They're printing on demand tees. You'd have to order like a, like an oh, order. That kind of, oh no, yeah. Like, okay. like ordering a, like 50 t-shirts. Right. In any case, I'm going to be spending the next month or so just researching quality t-shirts because again i chose below the collar because the quality is outstanding um i just got if you follow us on social media i just got the ted bird tribute tee the triple t um <laughs> which is our most um ink to t-shirt t-shirt i love that and um the quality is so incredible and i just know there's companies in the world where that quality yeah. the thickness of that print won't be there and so i'm going to spend the next month or so just researching if you guys have places where you you sell your yeah. merchandise that you really swear by that the printing is really crisp and great that it doesn't fade over time i used a company years ago for another podcast where after a few months you clearly see the print mm -hmm. and also the colors weren't crisp and so i'm really bummed about it i'm happy they're so successful in the things that they're doing that they need to shut this branch down but i'm just sad about it but again from now until January 1st, you can buy our full line of t-shirts. They're all, all available on belowthecollar.com slash nymysterymachine. They are the best quality. I'm going to try to find quality that's just as good, but I know for a fact this quality is the best quality. So if you've been sitting on, waiting on, getting one of our t-shirts, go and buy for it now. before January 1st. They make great stocking stuffers. That's what I, I just did. I just bought the t-shirts the that I've been meaning to purchase for myself. Um, yeah. And I've, I said, well, now is, now is the time to pull that trigger. Yeah, Sam bought me Sam bought me the Pride logo one that we made and the Ted Bird tribute tee for my birthday, and uh, which is really funny. I love when people buy me things for my birthday. And also, I was like, thanks for this birthday gift that also incidentally made me money. I love it. <laughs> um, it was really the great. gift that keeps on giving. And I love them. They, they came out so, I'm so glad I have them. So I'm also going to buy myself the the um, the Veiled Murder ST. Yes. I'm also buy myself the. Um, we can do a joint a, a group photo. And I'm also going to buy the, the List T, which is our most yes. popular selling. So worry not. The, the pros of it all, I love how we're talking about this. Like you guys are in on the conversation, our t-shirting. <laughs> the pros of it is that we're going to be moving our, um, 
or sticker operations to probably like an Etsy, something like that. And ideally, we want to find a company that has an Etsy interface so that if you order a T-shirt, it goes to that company. If you order a sticker, it goes through us because we get those delivered here Bulk. because we use an amazing company. I'll plug them. They're called Stickerfied. Um, the guy who runs it, it's, I think it's just like one dude. He's so nice. He always like prints a few extra, then yeah. throws them in for free. If you need, if you like our stickers, if you have our stickers, if you need stickers made, go to stickerfy.com. Um, not a sponsor, but I'm just so happy to plug uh, the work that they do. Um, it's just really solid work, and um, I'm so happy to, to always give give them my business. Um, so yeah. So anyway, that's the bad news, but we're working on it, folks. Is there good news, Adam? The good news is that there is a new T-shirt, the final T-shirt on BelowTheCollar.com, which we won't well, talk we about right now <laughs> because we will talk about it we'll later. We'll talking about it a lot. Um, so that's also uh, available. And new stickers are coming out for the new design. I've yeah, ordered those sorry. yesterday. I ordered just 50 of those. When they go out, I'll, I'll think about resupplying. We still have um, Pride stickers. A few of those left if you want to buy those. For now, if you want one of those, one of those stickers, you can uh, head out to our link tree and you can fill out a form on our link tree. Um, probably within the new year, there'll be a, a sophisticated shop that has all of our stuff in one location. That's the hope. That's the dream. Can't believe we're gonna have a sophisticated shop with all of our stuff in one location. Honestly, who who to thunk? Who to thunk? Christina, hey, where are we today? We are in a couple of places in New York. Christina, you have an episode today. I have an episode. <laughs> Guys. Welcome back from maternity leave. I got my shit together for an episode singular. <laughs> Blame Tammany. See you in a few months. Bye. <laughs> it's been nice. We 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 laugh, but we're also not joking. Anyway, uh, it's been a minute since we've done this kind of episode. Um, we're in a couple of places in New York today. It's a couple of it's a couple of not a couple of episodes, a couple of stories. Um, and so, so let's do a little review. Adam, do you remember how we identify witches in the 17th century? I guess. I didn't have to wait too long to talk about the new t-shirt because I actually <laughs> do know there's a way of identifying witches hmm. in the 7th century. What are some of those ways? Um, you have to decide if she's a woman. Mm -hmm. You have to decide if she's descended of a witch. Mm -hmm. If she's middle-aged or older, classic witch stuff. Classic witch. If she's married or a widow. If she's a doctor or a healer. Mm -hmm. um, if she reads magical texts. I mean, pretty dead giveaway, you know. Um, if she has a witch mark. Um, if she's confessed, and my favorite, if um, she vomits up uh, uh, pins, needles, coals, lead, straw, hair, or anything of the like. Yep. And if you think that you or your friend may be a witch, you can now double check by purchasing the <laughs> Colonial Witch Checklist t-shirt on belowthecollar.com slash NY Mystery Machine. It's available right now. There it is. Amazing. Um, I, I remember the first time that we went over the list of like qualities witches have, which was two years ago, the last time we did a witch. Oh my word. And um, you looked at the list and you said, yeah, yeah, these are all, yeah, you're a witch. You, you've got all these qualities. <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I remember going to the episode. What episode was that? That was like episode. Um... Oh, it was like 18 maybe. It was one of my great titles. It was by the pricking of my thumbs. Colon. No, you didn't. It was before you. Before. You, you butchered my beautiful, laborious um, titles. Yeah, if you want to listen to that episode where we talk about the witch list initially, that's episode 18, The Witch of East Hampton, Long Island. It was, not a, it was not a long title. It probably was a long title, and I cut it. It's called By the Pre... <gasps> no, it's not. You son of a bitch! <laughs> it's The Witch of East Hampton. It should have been By the, by the Pricking of My Thumbs, colon, the... 
I, I can't fit all that. I, I feel graphic. like you're not trying hard enough, Adam. You do it. You do it. You do. You I you you post the episodes. Okay. <laughs> As soon as she has a child, kids, I can't do this. I'm busy. Three months ago, I'm busy making sure a human being survives Mm. into the ripe old age of 18. (laughs) And then she's on her own. Then she's on her own, kids. (laughs) Then I'm taking a cruise. (laughs) (laughs) Then Adam and I are going ghost hunting for a full year in Europe. European ghosts I could get behind I just I don't, if it means a trip to Europe I will stand outside the house careful what go. you wish for yeah careful what you wish for an all inclusive <laughs> uh, you know those that that is an excellent list which is why you should buy the t-shirt um, most of those condemned for witchcraft were women Paul B. Moyer a professor of history at SUNY Brockport writes the following in his book Detestable and Wicked Arts colon New England and Witchcraft in the Early Modern Atlantic World great title quote One point of view contends that it was at the core of witch prosecutions across early modern Europe and its new world colonies. According to this outlook, witch hunting served to maintain male dominance and undermine female power, and men who fell victim to accusation were simply collateral damage of what was essentially a war against women, unquote. So he goes on to know that four out of five people accused of being involved in the occult were women, while two-fifths of the men accused were not prosecuted beyond a grand jury. A quarter of the men who went to trial were condemned to death, while a third of women were able to avoid trial, and half of those ending up at trial were condemned to death. So in this period, if you're accused of being a witch, you have a 50-50 chance of being killed, basically. Descendants of women uh, accused of being witches would also be viewed poorly and suspiciously. So that had a generational ramification. And then there are socioeconomic factors. We mentioned older, as in 60 plus, um, which might have something to do with the inability to bear children. And that in some way marks a woman as deviant um, or more susceptible to the occult. Uh, At some point married, uh, but being a widow greatly increases your likelihood of, of being accused then, like you said, doctoresses, healers, someone with folk knowledge of medicine. Um, confession is I- confession is ideal. Um, so under some courts, you could torture the person who's been accused, but not in New England courts. And what's important to recall is that parts of Long Island in the 1600s were considered part of the colony of Connecticut. So we would say that what they did in Salem was kind of wrong, like by like, you know, when they were putting rocks on... Giles mm. Corey, that's torturing him so he confesses. Yeah. So they technically were breaking the law. Well, because that's in Massachusetts, I don't know. Is that I, not New England? It is New England, but I don't know if... They had their own laws? I don't know if it's blanketly every place in New England or just most of New England. If you but don't yeah, have your own be. laws, you have to follow these laws. But if you have, if you have your own It law. might be. I have to look more into... That's a great question. What though. a great question I had. Look at that. I know things. You I, know know. The, I know the crucible. <laughs> <laughs> more weight. <laughs> Um, then there's the witch mark, which you mentioned, um, and that's basically a spot on the body where a familiar could nurse. So it's, that sounds gross. Yeah, it's basically supposed to be like a third mi- nipple hidden somewhere on you. Oh, I thought it was like a cool like tattoo. I wish that would be because in my brain I was like, ooh, you know what we should do at, for the podcast? <gasps> get like a matching get, witch mark. Get cool tattoos. But yes. now I'm like, I don't want a third nipple. <laughs> and it's it's a third. And here's the thing about witch marks. Um, they were believed to be numb and that they would not bleed. So what would happen is they would thrust a needle into the mark and 
this would often be, you know, a, I don't like not this. just a third nipple, but a mole or a birthmark. I don't like those. Right. You would probably think of that as torture, but somehow that didn't fall under like the category. Of, I don't like poking and prodding any body or body. Yeah. Sounds pretty terrible. Um, and then there's this marvelous list of other signs written by Michael Dalton, who wrote this whole treatise on like occult things. When a healthful body shall be suddenly taken without probable reason or apparent natural cause, when two or more persons are similarly taken in strange fits, when the afflicted party in his fits tells truly what the witch or other absent parties is doing or saying or the like, when the parties shall do strange things or say strange things, and yet when out of their fits know nothing of what they did or said. When there is a supernatural strength such that a strong man or two shall not be able to keep down a child or a weak person upon a bed, when the party doth vomit up crooked pins, needles, coals, lead, straw, hair, or the like. When the party shall be visibly some apparition, and shortly after some mischief shall befall him. So, one thing that's important is that legally, the definition of witchcraft meant a pact with the devil, not just general um, malfeasium, so the causing of an individual suffering. You have to have made a pact with the devil and prove this in some way through those things <laughs> so adam you have your checklist i have my checklist we're going to talk about a couple of cases uh that involve new york and uh you're gonna tell me if you think these people were convicted of witchcraft either are they all women because i, I could assume the majority is going to be convicted of witchcraft today you got it well you've still got a 50 50 shot as always just by being a woman just by being a woman and so we start. The odds are not technically in your favor. They're even. They're even. They're even. <laughs> it's a real gamble. Um, and we are starting with a woman, Hannah Horton Hildreth Bauer. Oh, Hannah Horton Hilbert. Hildreth. Hildreth. Triple Triple H. Yeah, Bauer. H three B. H three B. Sixteen eighty three Southampton. That's where we are. In Southampton. Southampton. Where's Southampton? Suffolk County. Uh, so the South Fork of Long Island. Out on the island. Um, so funny you should ask. It is uh, made up of several incorporated villages and hamlets. Um, so North Haven, Quogue, Sad Harbor. I tell you Harbor. this. I tell you this. The one thing I got from this show, above mm. all the things we got, mm. so many rewarding things I got from this podcast. The one thing I got above all those things is now when I read the word hamlet, I'm like, I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> I know what a hamlet is. You know? I did not know that three years ago. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. More than just a poor Danish prince. <laughs> Um, it also includes Southampton, where we are. Speak in the microphone, today. please. Mm. It also. I'm, includes... I'm keeping that in the. I'm keeping that in the pot. So you guys hear what I deal with. So you guys hear what I deal with. <laughs> this is why we're raising six hundred dollars for new microphones that literally will be placed and clamped right in front of Christina's stupid all face. <laughs> all that's going to do is prevent me from fussing with it. It's not going to make me talk into it. You're going to get fair. me like some sort of. I'm going to box restraint. You in. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so as of the 2020 census, the town has 69,000 people living there. Now, Southampton is Shinnecock land. Um, the Shinnecock are an Algonquian Native American group who continue to live in the Hamptons. Um, the word Shinnecock means people of the Stony Shore in the Shinnecock language. And they uh, were among the first peoples to make contact with Europeans upon European arrival on the eastern seaboard. And just FYI, there's a wonderful documentary called Conscious Point um, about a Shinnecock activist fighting to protect their burial grounds and sacred lands, the Shinnecock people from developers. It's on PBS Passport. Support your local PBS station. Um, and also one of the... Um, the uh, accounts that we post for Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, Janae Bullock, uh, she is Jinnakaka Montauk, an environmental activist and Indigenous activist. Um, and Courtney Leonard, a Marvel Shinnecock artist. So that's just a little bit about the Shinnecock, whose land this is. Um, here's what happens. 
in about 1640, the European settlers are settling the area. Um, and they established the town of Southampton. Now, these European settlers were originally from Lynn, Massachusetts. There were eight men and a woman and a young boy, and they landed at Conscience Point. So this is when they are meeting the Shinnecock. Um, and they, uh, there is a quote-unquote sale, which we know is not a sale, um, but they start to take over the land, push the Shinnecock out, and they're, they're building Southampton. Please note among the individuals named as this original group is a man named Alan Bread, which is a great name. Um, and I just want to, on on the name of his, uh, the basis of his name alone, I, I really want to do this on the Where Are We, like yeah. Where Are They Now podcast. I wish he had his own company called the Alan Bread Company. So it's ABC. <gasps> Someone in Southampton, start an Alan Bread Company. This and is then the Allen Bread Company. Give us a percentage of your That sounds profits. like a cool band name. Also, you can start a band if you want. A, <laughs> the Allen Bread Company. A bread Company band. The Allen Bread Company. Their logo is just a, a loaf of bread. <laughs> All their fans are slices. Please stop me. <laughs> um, what have I become? <laughs> I can't stop. <laughs> what is this episode? This is the weirdest episode, you guys. <laughs> we haven't even recorded another one yet today. Woohoo! Uh, so this, anyway, this made Southampton the first English colony in the state of New York. Um, so it's in the setting a mere 43 years after Europeans arrived in Southampton and a mere 25 years after the events of Goody Garlic nearby, episode 18, uh, that we encounter Hannah Horton Hildreth Bauer Travelly, or Travali, not really sure. Now, there isn't a ton of documentation about her, unfortunately. According to S.R. Ferrara, author of Accused of Witchcraft in New York, which I believe just came out this year, quote, during the 17th century, settler women only appear in the historical record when mentioned in marriages or wills and tracing them through time often relies on mentions of their husbands within court documents. God. <laughs> you didn't exist unless you so were So basically don't exist. Hannah was the fourth child, we do know, born to a Barnabas Horton in the 1630s. Barnabas Horton. Barnabas Horton. She was born in Leicestershire, Warwickshire, England. Uh, of Barnabas, uh, who was born in a place called Mousley, which I think is a great name. Uh, Ferrara writes that he, quote, is an interesting character in his own right. He started out as a less than prosperous baker in England and became an influential landowner on Long Island and began the line of Hortons in, in Amer the Americas. And there's a whole book on him. But anyway, also he has to feature on our Where Are They Now episodes. So Hannah was born to Barnabas and his wife, Mary. They left England with their children, go to North America, live in Hampton, Massachusetts for a time, then New Haven, Connecticut, settle in Southampton by 1640. Hannah gets married three times, hence her many names. She was married to a Thomas Hildreth, landowner. Together they had four children. They lived at Flying Point on the western banks of McCox Bay within the Southampton community. Now Thomas died about 1657 when Hannah was in her late 20s. Then she married Jonas Bauer, a weaver, and had four more kids. So she has eight kids total now, though we don't know how many children may have been stillborn or whether she miscarried at any point it's entirely possible which again for the record would have aroused more suspicions you might remember from our jersey devil episode that um any sort of miscarriage or uh birth defects uh might be looked upon as a sign of a cult anyway hannah and thomas are married um they're home you know they have 14 years together um and then thomas jonas dies at age 40 in 1671 the house is left to his son Jonah um, and left in Hannah's care until Jonah came of age. And then Hannah married Thomas Travail. Now Thomas moved to Southampton in 1666 and was a cooper, i.e. someone who makes wooden barrels and caskets and stuff. And meanwhile, 
Barnabas Horton, her father, dies in 1681, leaving Hannah 10 sheep. <laughs> and it's the details that I really love. In 1683... One cannot say that you're not detail-oriented. <laughs> leaving her 10 sheep. 10 sheep. In Will these sheep come back in the story? No. No. But she had them. She had them. Just in the background of everything that's about to happen, I want you to hear... In 1683, when Hannah was in her 50s-ish, Edward Lacey, a Southampton neighbor, came forward with a bold accusation. How dare he? Lacey said that not only had Hannah set his corn on fire, but that she was sitting on his house in the night. <laughs> sitting on his house? Like that top? So admittedly, this is unclear to me. Why, <laughs> why is this evidence of witchcraft? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, she could have just I been... I mean, why was she sitting on his... How'd she get up there? Right. I mean, she could have used a ladder. What if she was, was there like, a ladder there, Christina? I don't know. It doesn't I think say. she's a witch. <laughs> Lacey also claimed that he was hag-ridden for three nights by Hannah. What is hag-ridden, you ask? I do ask. Hag-riding was a kind of attack through magic by a witch, though it could also be a ghost, demon, some other thing. I feel like you hag-write me all the time. <laughs> I'm like, this is mischief. <laughs> it's usually a nocturnal terror. So um, nightmares... Still. Um, and some have suggested that perhaps it's a form, it's really like a form of sleep paralysis. But in this time period, credit was given to witches, and in this case, to Hannah. So Hannah's case eventually does go to trial, as far as I can tell. Um, but we don't seem to have the original transcripts anymore. Mm. So, Adam. That's me. Based off the evidence we have. She was a so witch. Far, she was on someone's house. <laughs> I believe she's convicted of being a witch. Okay. So that's what, okay, so you believe she was also convicted of being a witch. Not that, that she is a witch. There's, there's two questions here. Was she a witch by these standards? And two, did the courts convict her? She's a witch by the standards, mm-hmm. right? She's a woman, yeah. middle age. Had a hundred husbands. Had, she only had four husbands. She had but... four husbands. She had those sheep. Yeah. Um, she was on but, top uh, of a, uh, She yeah. was on top of a house. I think by the standards of the time, she is a witch. Mm-hmm. And then the second question is, was she convicted of being a witch? I'll say yes. Okay. She was. Can, I, can we have some sort of like sting here? Oh, I'll put a sting in there. Great. She was acquitted. Acquitted? She went free. Oh, my word. So Ferrara suggests that perhaps this was because Lacey was a relative newcomer to the town and Hannah was a lifer. So Lacey... You know, doesn't have the same There's no local to her, right? Yeah. Exactly. Everyone knows Hannah. Who's this Lacey guy? Um, in fact, Lacey was made to pay three shillings and six pence to the Travelly Travelli. I'm not really sure still. Family, and in fact, is not found in the records of Southampton thereafter. Perhaps suggesting that things go real awkward, and he left. Thomas Travelly uh, died in 1687, just four years later, at the age of 46, and Hannah lived on to be about 70. Our next story starts in Connecticut proper, but before we kick that off, let's take a break. Sure. We'll be right back with some more, maybe, with some more, but are they a witch? The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. 
head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today. We're back. Kind of want to do an entire Are show. They yeah. a witch? Are they a witch? And it can be called Is she a witch or a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> what? And that's particularly apt because our next story involves a woman who is considerably cantankerous. Apparently, it's like I don't know, you guys. It's like, it's like her friends are like, you guys. She's not a witch. She's kind of a bitch. She's kind of a bitch. It's cool. <laughs> she's down with that. Call her a bitch all you want. She's down with that. <laughs> Don't call women bitches, Don't okay? Do that. It's really not an okay thing to say. It's degrading. Um, if anything, just call them witches. Just call them a witch. <laughs> <laughs> totally not degrading. Um, so, but can get you hung. So, but could get you hung. Hanged. 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 You, uh, a person is hanged, but you hung a picture. My grandmother has drilled this into me. Our next story. I'm going to keep that dead air too. <laughs> <laughs> keep Our next story begins in Connecticut and centers on Katherine Harrison. So I promise it does end up in New York, but we start in Connecticut. Sounds good. Like all. Like, like all New York podcasts. Like all New Yorkers do. They end, start someplace else and <laughs> end up in New York. So Catherine was born in England again and then moved to the America sometime around 1650 or so. She settled in Wethersfield, Connecticut, which is just outside of Hartford. It's possible that she was related to another Connecticut family, the Gilberts, and was perhaps the daughter or niece of of one of the prominent Gilberts, including um, Lydia Gilbert, who was executed as a witch in Hartford in 1654. So not necessarily not necessarily descended of a witch, though she might have been a daughter. We're not sure, but perhaps related in some way to this convicted, executed witch. She so Catherine worked as a servant for Captain John Culloch. Now, apparently, while working for him, Catherine read a book by a British astrologer named William Lilly. She's a witch. She read a book. Right. <laughs> it's about fortune telling. And I mean, it's a fortune telling book. She's a witch. And then she took this, this like, almost like palm reading, I think it was, business a step further. She tried to predict the futures of other servants in the captain's employ. So at least one such prediction apparently came to pass. And I don't know if we have a record as to how this was received, but just hold on to that information. Held. Eventually, Catherine marries John Harrison, a landowner and the town crier. He was a decently wealthy man, and together he and Catherine had three children, all daughters. John died in August 1666 or 1667, depending on what source you happen to be reading, at which time Catherine and the kids inherited, quote, a large estate. Rebecca, at age 12, received 60 pounds. Mary, age 11, was receiving 40 pounds, and Sarah, age 9, was receiving also 40 pounds so this included another like 900 pounds total that would have been to the entire family um the harrisons were average or of humble background so this is quite a fortune that was managed to be acquired um and one thing that we do see sometimes in the stories of witches is that there's some socioeconomic mobility that gets associated with them so um that that ability to move up and to acquire resources under you without being nobility in some way was looked upon you know askance uh do so you remember in the goody garlic stories too that they seem to be 
getting favors from John Gardner and everyone's like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this. Yes, you'll remember two years ago that episode. Very clearly all in the, your mind. All the details. Because you hang on to every word that I say. Um, every single every word. Every single word. Every over-explained word that Christina <laughs> says. Um, so... John Harrison also seems to have had a medical bent. He apparently left Catherine and the kids a full cupboard of apothecary's drugs. And presumably, I would presume, that Catherine knew how to use them. Mm-hmm. For, uh, as a result of this inheritance, Ferrara writes that Catherine became one of the wealthiest landowners in the community. Um, which, again, not only is weird in a time when social mobility wasn't a thing, but it's socially unacceptable as the outcome for a woman in this patriarchal society. So in the 17th century, expectation was that widows of a certain age, which Catherine would be, would remarry. You need a man at the head of the household, after all. Um, Catherine, it seems, did not do this in a manner that was quick enough for folks' liking. She was a widow for two full years and was involved in a couple of disputes with the locals during that time. So she would note that uh, some of her neighbors vandalized her estate, and in 1668, Michael and Anne Griswold sued Catherine for slander. John Chester, meanwhile, was at war with Catherine over some land. And by some accounts, there was even a third lawsuit. Um, according to Liam Connell in his article, A Great and Notorious Liar, Catherine Harrison and Her Neighbors, Wethersfield, Connecticut, 1668 to 1670. A great title. <laughs> the three decisions were ultimately uh, about matters of property and the verdicts rendered by juries of her fellow Wethersfield inhabitants were against Catherine. Um there seems to be a general dislike of Catherine that runs through a lot of the accounts of Wethersfield. Presenthea Wolf Boynton in her book, Connecticut Witch Trials, The First Panic in the New World, quote, one former neighbor wrote the court saying that seven or eight years earlier, Catherine had stolen milk from his cows. But when he attempted to stop her, an invisible force held him still until Catherine was gone. Another neighbor named Michael Griswold, we mentioned him, sued her 150 pounds for slander on behalf of himself and his wife, Anne. Catherine, he said, had told people that Michael had threatened to hang her and that his soul was damned. She also called Anne publicly a savage whore and other expressions of like nature. Catherine was known, however, to help with ill neighbors. So, for example, she is known in the records to have dressed a man's big toes wound. Um, Very specific. I'm sorry, what? A man had a big toe. Yep, what a wound. There was a wound. And, and she, she dressed, dressed it. <laughs> dressed it. It just doesn't sound right when you say it. Yeah. Not you personally. Just in, just in general. <laughs> just a weird phrase. Um, she also helped another person with uh, diet, drink, and plaster. So she it suggests consumption-based medicine as well as topical medicines. Um, and according to several neighbors, she was known for deceit. Um, at trial, spoiler, she goes to trial, um, she would be in uh, called, in the words of Liam Connell, a chronic liar. Thomas Waples also called her a noted liar, and Mary Hale said that Catherine was nothing but a tool of the devil and that the devil is a liar. So by the transitive property, Catherine also is a liar. Is that where the phrase the devil's a liar comes from? The Interesting. The devil's a liar. Devil's a liar. Uh, and one suggestion is that perhaps this idea of Catherine being a liar is also linked to the idea of her as a, as a failed healer, right? That if she's trying to help with um, certain illnesses and it's not working, you know, you've, you've failed at the one task you have, right? To, to heal someone. So you are a liar and that moment of grief overtakes you. So by 1668, Catherine is on trial for witchcraft. 
We no longer have the initial accusations as records, um, though it is believed that that would have occurred in April 1668 because depositions began in May and June of 1668. And uh, here are some of the testimonies given to Catherine at, at trial. We heard a few already. Of, that's how we get those accounts. Um, Thomas Weeples also says that when Catherine was working in Hartford, she, and here I'm quoting Boynton's book again, used her supernatural powers, engaged in evil conversations, and was named by convicted witch Rebecca Greensmith as being part of her coven. Oh boy. A different co-worker, Elizabeth Simon, said that Catherine could spin linen fibers so fine and in such a quantity that she must have used witchcraft to do it. A tailor claimed that Catherine came to him in a dream, threatened him with death, and on another occasion, she enchanted him, which resulted in him incorrectly tailoring a jacket. Classic. <laughs> Someone else said that she made the head of a calf disappear what? and would gather her cows by shouting, Hokanum, Hokanum, come Hokanum, which I guess is a magical incantation. It's a little unclear to me what the deal with that is. Mary Hale, age 20, said that for two months, the image of an ugly dog with Catherine's face would appear in her bed at night, crushing her stomach and threatening to murder her. So, so apparently the dog appeared three times, and on the third time, the dog, well, Adam, <laughs> would you like to read as the dog with Catherine's head? With Catherine's? Wait. So, so this is the dog that appeared on Mary Hale's chest, growling at her three times. And on the third time it appeared with Catherine's head. Okay. And says this. I can't even get it out. I was going to say, the rest of this conversation in that voice, I can't wait. You said that I, you said I would not come again. You are not afraid of me. <laughs> and Mary said, no. I will make you afraid of me before I am done with you. And at this point, the dog began to crush Mary. Ow! <laughs> Apparently, Mary spent some time struggling trying to call her parents for help. Um, and then the dog said, Though you do call, they shall not hear me till I am gone. You said I have preserved my cart to carry me to the gallows. But to you, I will make it a death cart. Oh! <laughs> So apparently, <laughs> apparently this was what Mary had pre, uh, previously said privately to her sister. So this is knowledge outside of the dog Catherine's presence. And then Mary says, I fear not because God will keep me. <laughs> I have commission to kill you, Mary. Who gave you commission? God did, Mary. <gasps> the devil's a liar from the very beginning, for God will not give commission to murder. Therefore, it must be from the devil. You will make these events known broad, but if you keep it a secret, I will no longer afflict you. Ow, ow! <laughs> woof, woof, woof! <laughs> 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 and apparently uh, Mary responded by saying she was going to tell everybody. And you know what my favorite part of this exchange is now that we've done it? Is that the creature's <laughs> voice was apparently the same as Catherine Harrison's. So we have to believe that that's exactly what Catherine Harrison yeah, sounded yeah, yeah. like. No, that's, yeah. right, that's right. Yeah, I love it. I, that's what, that was that's what you were going for. In life, I think that she, she, she's <laughs> just happened to sound like a dog. Catherine Harrison, how dare you slander me and my wife. <laughs> 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 Dog we have, voices we are have fun. reason to believe that you were a witch. <laughs> <laughs> um, good God. 
So at trial, Joan Francis also testified that her own child was sick. And in the night, Goody Francis saw Catherine outside her house. Goody Francis said aloud, Lord, bless me and my children. Here is Goody Harrison, which according to um, Liam Connell, this has the intonation of relief. Uh, but Catherine then performed some sort of odd ritual that disturbed Goody Francis and her husband. And despite, and despite or because of this intervention, the child eventually died. So Catherine was acquitted in October 1668, but on May 25th, 1669, she was again indicted for witchcraft. And this time the governor, Governor John Winthrop, presided. Um, Catherine pled not guilty. And finally, on October 12th, 1669, the jury's verdict was in for real this time. Adam, was she a witch? Did they convict her? Yes. The jury. She's a witch because of the dog business. <laughs> Did she convict her? Yes, because I think they believe the dog business. <laughs> they said, well, she does sound like a dog when she talks. I mean, she, in general, she, she keeps going like a, She keeps and then barking at things. <laughs> she like, it was, she peed, like she lifts the up a post leg. office, the postman came and she kept barking at him. It was so odd. Can't get mail in this town. <laughs> we threw our, I mean, I, I heard someone threw a stick and she just ran and grabbed it and grabbed it back. It was really odd, odd behavior. <laughs> I mean, if she's not a witch, I think she may be a dog, you guys. It's either witch or dog, and I don't think... I mean, I never never met a talking dog. Was she a witch or a bitch? (laughs) Full circle! (laughs) Witch or a bitch? (laughs) Oh, this episode, y'all. You guys, sometimes. So the jury said she was guilty. Yeah. Catherine not only had to pay all fees and debts related to the case, which basically means she had to pay for the cost of her imprisonment during these two years. Um, she was also going to be put to death for her crime. However, Catherine was not about to take this as the final answer. She offered instead to undergo a water test, i.e. throw her into the water. And if she was innocent, she would sink. And if guilty, she would float. Now, here's the thing. Classic. I don't know how this helps her. No. She's already been convicted and is going to die. And she says, don't worry. Throw me in the water. I'll prove you to you I'm innocent. I'll sink. And presumably drown. Maybe she's like, I'm a really good swimmer though, y'all. So like, I'm going to keep swimming away. And then they're going to say, the body vanished. Twas a witch. Twas a witch. Anyway. But now she's gone. Now she's saved. That's true. That's a good point. Um, so at this point, the general court. General court. <laughs> which is the, the, the supreme governing body in colonial New England, held a special session of the Court of Assistance at Hartford on May 30th, 1670, uh, wherein Catherine's order of execution was overturned. And it was decided she did not need to undergo the water test. She, however, was made to leave Connecticut. And instead, she left and lived in Westchester, New York. Oh, boy. Here's how the Court of Assistance phrased the final decision. This special court, having considered the verdict of the jury respecting Catherine Harrison, cannot concur with them so as to sentence her to death or to longer continuance and restraint, do dismiss her from her imprisonment, she paying her just fees. Willing her to mind to mind the fulfillment of removing from Wethersfield, which is that which people will be the most to her own safety and the contentment of the neighbor of the the contentment of the people who are her neighbors. So why the change of heart? Well, Governor Winthrop and some of his peers were uncomfortable with the types of evidence being used against Catherine. In fact, her case was raising real legal questions about what types of evidence were needed to prove various types of witchcraft. Winthrop asked Catherine to respond in writing to every charge against her and then asked a panel of ministers and magistrates to study her responses with an eye to how her responses should impact her sentencing and the future of witchcraft trial cases. 
So the result of this panel was that, per Boynton, quote, the burden of proof shifted from the defendant to her or his accusers. No longer would one witness testimony of an event be accepted as fact. For future trials, at least two witnesses to every diabolical event would be required, unquote. Um, and furthermore, apparitions in the form of the accused were no longer considered to be evidence. So going forward, I suppose an apparition of you as a dog does not count as evidence. That's very fortunate. Very fortunate. So this is how Catherine comes to Westchester, New York in June 1670, a convicted witch ousted from her home. By July, some neighbors were already pulling some real nimby shit and complaining that they had to live near a known witch. Uh, and we know this because a formal complaint was registered with the Westchester courts. So here is the order issued as a result of that complaint. Uh, the order was issued by Frances Lovelace, the second governor of New York. You know St. Lovelace. I know. I really want to find out if she's related because there is. I did her genealogy because this is what I do for fun. Yeah. And there, she does have, at some point in the way, <gasps> path, a New York route. Oh, boy. Even though she's not from New York. So I really want this to be her ancestor. I really want it to. Um, so, Adam, will you do the <clears throat> honors? Um. <clears throat> Whereas complaint hath been made unto me by inhabitants of Westchester, I guess Catherine Harrison, late of Westerfield, in his majesty's colony of Connecticut, widow, the contrary to the consent and good liking of the town, she would settle amongst them, and she being reputed to be a person lying under superstition of witchcraft, hath given some cause of apprehension to the inhabitants there. To the end, their jealousies and fears as to this particular be removed. I have thought fit to order and appoint that the constable and overseers of the town of Westchester do give warning to the said Catherine Harrison to remove out of their pre precincts in some short time after given after notice given. And they are likewise to admonish her to return to the place of her former abode, that they nor their neighbors may receive no further disturbance by her. Given under my hand at Fort James in New York this seventh day of July, 1670, Francis Lovelace. So they basically say, get the fuck out, Catherine. You gotta go, girl. And that seems to not have worked. We yeah. know she's stubborn. She just hung out. Adam, would you like to read once more? <coughs> this is what we get a month later. Whereas complaint has been made unto me by the inhabitants of Westchester against Catherine Harrison, widow, that she doth neglect or refuse to obey my order, my late order concerning her removal out of the said town, those re to require you that you give notice unto the said Catherine Harrison, as also unto Captain Richard Panton, whose house she resideth, that they may make their personal appearance before me. In this place, on Wednesday, next being the 24th of this instant month, when those of the town have ought to object against them, do likewise attend, where I shall endeavor composure of this indifference between them. Give it unto my hand at Fort James in New York, <laughs> this 20th day of August 1670, Francis Lovelace. <laughs> I want Frances Lovelace to be the voice you like. I just want that to be a character. Yeah, I think it's gonna. It's be. our first. It's our first named character too. <laughs> that we didn't name. It's a real person. Yeah. Um. So, basically, <laughs> Frances Lovelace is like, 
guys, get it together. All right, come come here. You come here. All the inhabitants who have a problem come here. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, like Solomon the Wise, you know, figure out how to do this. Now, one of the men that had been upset by Harrison's presence was a man by the name of Thomas Hunt. Conveniently, his son Josiah suddenly was betrothed to Catherine Harrison's oldest daughter, mm. at which point Thomas Hunt began to defend Harrison. Around the fall of 1670, this is the last entry in Westchester on the matter. In the case of Catherine... Are ha- you reading this? Not- oh, whoa, I just kept going. <laughs> Adam. That would be a fool. Take this. In the case of Catherine Harrison, widow, blah, 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 who was bound to be good behavior? <laughs> Who was bound to the good behavior upon complaint of some of the inhabitants of Westchester until holding of this court? It is ordered that in regard there is nothing appears against her deserving the countenance of that obligation. She is to be released from it and hath liberty to remain in the town of Westchester where she now resides or anywhere else (laughs) in the government during her pleasure. Francis! Lovelace. <laughs> I like that you can hear the flourish of the quill. You know? Um, so Catherine lays low after that. There is some suggestion that someone else accused her of witchcraft in 1673, which is when the, the New York was occupied by the Dutch. Mm. But this seems to have also been dismissed, which isn't really surprising because the Dutch were kind of like, witchcraft? Come on, guys. Um, she ends up doing some business in Connecticut. She ends up suing her old neighbors again, dealing with some property issues. And it's possible she even died in Dividend, a section of Weathersfield, in October 1682. But there's other evidence that she went to Long Island, um, as there was a warrant that said the constables and officers of Long Island were to help her recover or reclaim some goods that she was missing, um, i.e. the government was trying to prevent further attacks on her property, which again suggests that she had disputes with neighbors, perhaps along lines of witchcraft. But she, she remains a convicted witch, Lived in New York for a time, sometimes as a dog. (laughs) (laughs) What a weird episode this was. (laughs) And that is a story of Goody H3B and (laughs) Goody Harrison. There you have it, folks. Uh, if you have any thoughts on the tales of witchcraft, you know what to do. You head us over, hit us up over on our social media at NY Mystery Machine on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok at NY Mysteries on X. Um, or you can write us an email, nymysterymachine at gmail.com. While you're surfing the net, how about you head on over to our Patreon? Join our Patreon for as little as $3 a month. You join our membership for as little as $5 a month. You get a bonus episode every single month delivered to you either on the Patreon app or now on the Spotify app. Um, so be sure to do that. We love our patrons. Like we said earlier, we are raising on some money. We need to buy some new microphones for the pod. Uh, we're looking to raise around $600. So like the more uh, more patrons to join, the faster you can get to getting to a place where Christina won't drive me crazy with the microphones. Good luck, guys. Um, if you'd like to help us out another way, you head on over to belowthecollar.com slash Machine while you still can and buy some of our fun shirts, including the all-new Colonial Witchcraft uh, checklist t-shirt uh, available in all sizes and styles. We're back next week with an all-new episode of the old podcast. Uh, I've been Adam Ace. I've been Christina Marinelli. And thank you ever so much for taking a ride on the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. Rat roll. <laughs>